Well, welcome to episode 116 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the hack, Hugh Rimminson, and the professor, Peter Van Onselen, joining us from Canberra. Peter, how are you going? I'm actually in Brisbane, Hugh, for the debate. Of course. With Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese. Scott Morrison's not even here yet, mind you, at this particular point in time. He uh, He's in Adelaide, I believe, and he's flying in on the day to be able to then do the debate, uh, whereas Anthony Albanese is visiting the electorate of Ford on the outskirts of Brisbane, a key seat that he hopes to pick back up, and then they'll both go at it tonight. So how important is the debate? Who's going to win it? How important is it for Albo particularly? Because some voters indicate they still don't actually know who he is and is trying to get a handle on it. I don't think the debate's that important in the long term unless there's a major gaffe. So in other words, if both leaders play it conservatively and do okay, on the margins, whoever wins or loses, I don't think ultimately becomes material. It's more if there is a, a huge blunder by either leader. I mean, I think back three years ago and Bill Shorten, according to all of the assessments of the debates and the audience scores, won all three of them. But ultimately, it didn't matter. He lost the election. And more importantly, he lost the campaign on the way to losing the election. So you know, winning all three debates didn't change the fact that Bill Shorten was perceived to have lost the campaign and then lost the election. So Anthony Albanese, after his first week with those early gaffes around unemployment, I guess the aim for him will be to make sure that he doesn't do some equivalent with the spotlight of the debate being right there in the middle of things. And of course, it's week two, so it would derail the remainder of his week two. So do you reckon he's been schooled up? He's had his little teams around him, just uh, quick quizzing him. You know, what is the uh, overall GDP to uh, wage increase growth of uh, Pacific Island nations uh, in a bad year when the rains haven't come? Well, because the nature of this debate is one of those people's forums uh, that Sky News does. So he'll mostly be getting asked questions from the floor. I suspect that they'll be more cost of living style questions. So you would hope that he's at least boning up on that. That was never his issue. That was Scott Morrison's issue, going back to the, the press club when he couldn't answer that question from Andrew Clennell on, on some of those particulars, you know, loaf of bread, carton of milk and so forth. But I tend to think, well, I know actually that Anthony Albanese is parking any campaign in this afternoon so that he can sit in his hotel room and, if you like, just get ready for the debate and get himself as up to speed as he can. So the event this morning the press, the travelling press pack, at least, have been told is the only event he'll be doing today. Scare campaigns. We'll hear a few of those at the debate. We'll hear some clear statements, presumably from both parties, about what they won't be doing in the face of what now seems to be an election campaign that's rather being defined by claims of the horrors that await if you go one way or the other. And there's scare campaigns sprouting on all sides. I guess is what this is what happens when you don't have a great deal of substantive policy difference that's being offered up there is into the vacuum. You have to fill it with all kinds of dire threats about what the other guys will do. Overall, before we get into some of the specific policy issues that are subject to the scare campaigns to see whether there's any actual merit in them, what do you make of this as the tactic in the second week? Well, I think it's a successful campaign tactic when it's deployed well, and both sides of politics do it, and both sides of politics, as you say, are doing it in this campaign. But that's a sort of a, an analysis based on purely the idea of whether or not it is a successful form of campaigning. I think it's definitely a successful form of campaigning. I also think that it happens to be an unfortunate form of campaigning that we always see in some form, but you rightly point out, when there is a vacuum because there are a lack of substantive policy debates to be had, because it's a bit of a Tweedledum, Tweedledee election, or it's a small target approach on either side, or neither major party have a decent plan into the medium to long term, that vacuum gets filled 
with these unsubstantiated debates. And as you say, we'll go through them one by one, but my broad view about the scare campaign that both sides are levelling at each other is that they are founded on a house of cards. I, I don't think that there is much, if any, substance to either campaign's scare campaigns that they're trying to level at each other. So if we look at the number one that's being run in recent days from the Labor Party is that uh, the government has plans to bring this cashless debit card right across welfare payments, including the aged pension. It has been ruled out repeatedly by front benches, by the prime minister, got very exercised saying, stop frightening pensioners. It's disgusting. It's a lie. That was Morrison in response to that. Is there, despite all of that, anything to it? No, in a word. I mean, look, I see the hypocrisy of Morrison saying, don't frighten pensioners when he's in the middle of frightening people about all other manner of things that the Liberals are choosing to do a scare campaign against Labor on. But on the specific issue of the welfare cashless card being extended to pensioners, uh, I've seen some of the stuff online trying to suggest that that's what's implied in, in what Anne Rustin has said previously and, and, and even in the way that the design of the policy has been put together. I've looked into that quite apart from also just having a, a political intuition about whether they would expand it. And on both counts, uh, it's just not going to ever happen. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I might have made election predictions before that have gone another direction, but this is a whole other issue. There is no way that the Liberal Party are going to turn pensioners into cashless welfare card recipients who can't draw down their pension as cash for one simple reason it would be political suicide. I mean, a party that doesn't have the guts to expand consumption taxes and make redress in other areas of the tax system is never going to go down the path of upsetting pensioners in that way. They are not part of the mix when Anne Rustin refers to the ability to roll out this cashless debit card to other welfare management structures. The government does not mean that to include pensioners. They are not considering pension as part of that mix. I don't doubt that the government could well roll out this trial of the cashless debit card out to other areas, 100%. I could imagine them doing it in relation to recipients, certainly of JobSeeker writ large, and I could certainly imagine them doing it to other cohorts of welfare payments uh, around disability support or whatever else it might be. That's on the table. Whether they rule it out or not, it's on the table ideologically for this government. But doing it to pensioners is too politically damaging. Sure. Well, let's talk about those other areas, because if that is on the table, the structure and the purpose of this cashless debit card is specifically to have it as a tool where there is both high, this is quoting from the website, the government website, both high welfare dependency and high social harm by which alcoholism, gambling addiction, and so on, means that the money goes straight out of the welfare payment and gets wasted on this sort of stuff. So that's the argument that gets made for it. In fact, the Auditor General's report into it says that it's not clear that, in fact, it has a better outcome when it comes to managing social harm. Hmm. So leaving aside the fact whether it works or not, what argument is there to extend it beyond an environment where you make the case that there is both high dependency on welfare and high social harm. Let me be clear. I personally, philosophically, am opposed to this cashless debit card uh, simply because I don't like the nanny state suggestions of it. I think that you either provide people with welfare in a way that is not as insulting as that 
and then yet they have the freedom to make the decisions of how they choose to spend it. And if they choose to waste it, that's up to them. You know, I would look at other things that you can restructure in the system, but if it is legal for anyone on welfare to turn up at a pokies and throw their welfare check through the pokey machine and then have nothing to live on after that. I don't believe in a nanny state that precludes people's movements and, and freedoms in that sense. But you think they might do it? Well, yeah, well, I think it's possible. I'm not saying they're going to, but that is in the realms of possibility for this reason. Yes, they're a liberal party. So in theory, they shouldn't be doing something like that for the same philosophical reasons that I'm against it. The nanny state writ large is not something that they should philosophically support. But the other half of the liberal party, if you like, is that they, you know, the, the bashing of people who are receiving state funding in that sort of welfare dependency category is something that I could imagine them seeing a political narrative to go down that path. Whether they do that now or whether they, for example, advocated for it from opposition in years from now uh, or quietly tried to do it in a piecemeal sense in government, I think that's all on the table as a possibility. Now, if the Prime Minister rules it out, then we can only take him at his word and then accuse him of a broken promise in the aftermath of the election. I think that's a legitimate scare campaign for Labor to run because I think that the government has both form on it and it's realistic, even if they rule it out, because we know politicians break promises. The one that I think is illegitimate is the idea that it gets extended to the pension, because I just think that that's one that is sacred territory for the Liberal Party that they wouldn't go down, only for self-interested reasons. Also, philosophically, they don't consider pensioners to be welfare recipients. I think they have a very kind of negative view on welfare, but they don't put collecting the age pension into that category of the same type of welfare. I think they have a very, um, you know, if, if you like, a very pejorative view of welfare, which is unhelpful to people on welfare and is quite critical and negative of them as individuals. But I don't think they extend that to pensioners per se. And one reason for that might be that the only segment of the voting public that votes by a majority for the coalition it is those aged over 65. Yep, exactly, exactly. You know, it's funny, this is great catch-up, and the ageing population works well for the Liberal Party. But on the, on the scare campaign, you know, it can still work, can't it? Because the retirees tax that Scott Morrison frightened pensioners with back in 2019 was never going to be Bill Shorten going after, you know, retirees and taxing them. It was, it was franking credits, which really had no application to pensioners at all. And yet that wasn't how Scott Morrison campaigned on it. And in seats like Cowper, which I remember is the oldest and outside the Northern Territory, the poorest electorate, full of pensioners on the New South Wales North Coast, it's kind of retiree land up there, he achieved a swing twice the national average. And 4.5%, a swing of 4.5% of Labor coalition was based on a decision around taxation as discovered by the ANU's Australian election study after the election. And that swing of 4.5% dwarfed anything that Labor was able to pick up for, you know, environment, climate change, Medicare-type reasons. And that's what won them the election. So no one can blame Labor for having a crack at it mm. if all that matters is not truth, but uh, getting across the line, and that effectively is all that matters in politics. Oh, totally, Hugh. And, and I mean, I do not have any sympathy for the coalition having to endure a scare campaign on this, as much as I believe it's a false scare campaign, any more than I have any sympathy for uh, the Labor Party when it has to endure scare campaigns from the coalition. What goes around comes around as far as this goes, because both parties do this. 
the retirees tax scare campaign was rubbish. Uh, the inheritance tax scare campaign, death duties from the last election that Scott Morrison was peddling around the traps was utter rubbish as well. I actually don't think that's bad policy, frankly, but I don't think either side of politics has the courage to reform the tax system in a direction that would actually see the rise of an inheritance tax, or better put, the return of an inheritance tax, which I've written about this uh, in my policy book with Wayne Errington. You know, we say that it was once a state tax. So Joe obviously abolished it. All the wrinklies went to Queensland and then every other state uh, abolished it as well. Uh, it should be a federal tax, an inheritance tax, and then you can you know, look at other tax reform to mitigate against it. That's just my view. It was an utterly false scare campaign by Scott Morrison last time. So what goes around comes around. And I, I had that view actually three years ago when Labor and Bill Shorten were enduring the scare campaign on the retirees tax and the inheritance tax, I took the view, what goes around comes around, because in 2016, he ran what I believe was an equally rubbish scare campaign around Medicare. Not that there could just be some cuts to Medicare, because that's a legitimate campaign to have a debate on, but that Malcolm Turnbull was going to abolish Medicare. I've never heard more rubbish in my life, other than all the other rubbish we hear from the uh, similar scare campaigns around inheritance tax, retirees tax, pensioners getting... Uh, getting hammered with um, with a cashless debit card. It's, it's, all, it's all fairyland stuff, but it's effective campaigning. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 116 of The Professor and The Hack. Thanks for staying with us uh, through these podcasts. 116, there you go, PBO. Yeah, we're getting on a bit. We are getting on a bit. I might get on to some of those other scare campaigns if we get time, but I do want to have a look at this Solomon Islands deal that has now been formally signed between Manessa Sogavara, the uh, Solomon Islands Prime Minister, and the Chinese leadership at the security deal. Penny Wong is out and about calling it the greatest strategic failure by an Australian government since World War II. Is it that big a deal or is this just another scare campaign? I'm going to turn that back on you and get your opinion in much more detail on this than mine because this is much more your area of expertise than it is mine. I don't know whether that's inflated rhetoric because it's quite definitive in its criticism by Penny Wong in terms of where it ranks in Australia's all-time security failures, but I think it's certainly a failure. What I don't know is where it ranks, which I'd be interested to hear your views on. And I also don't know whether it's one that is fair to put a partisan hit on and blame, if you like, the Morrison government for the eventuality of it versus just taking a sort of assessment, a cold, hard assessment that it's something that we were going to struggle to avoid, irrespective of which partisan complexion we had at the government of the day. And therefore, you know, it's, it's bad for Australia, but not a blame-orientated bad. What's your view? Well, I certainly think the fact that the opposition leader in the Solomon Islands gave warning that this was happening in August of last year, and somehow or other that warning just didn't quite make it into the corridors of, uh, of influence in Canberra. And we lost that opportunity to be involved in discussions with the Solomon Islands. We were involved with them in other ways during this period because Sogavara had all kinds of issues going on with, you know, fires in downtown Honiara, you know, security issues around the parliament and so on. There, there were a lot of reasons that it engaged Australia's interest, but somehow or other this warning had disappeared. And to quote the old song, never let a chance go by. China moves quickly into any gap, sees every opportunity that's available. 
They had poked and prodded around Vanuatu to see if there was a possibility there that was shut down effectively by um, Malcolm Turnbull getting close to the Vanuatu leadership. Doesn't stop China. They'll look around for the next possible fruit to be plucked, and they went with the Solomons. And uh, and it seems now they've nailed it. Is it too late now? Well, it's it's too late to unpick the security arrangements. Uh, yes. What really matters now is the degree to which it will be exploited by China. So Sogavara says there will be no naval base. That's just silly chatter. But we'll see, because China would dearly love a naval base in this part of the world. And they have a way of getting their desires. Mm. And their word, as we've seen again and again, whether it's over you know, militarizing islands in the, in the China Sea, ignoring the rule of law, of the laws of the sea, you know, over Hong Kong, over Taiwan, it will do as it pleases fundamentally. And its word is not to be trusted. And it has proven that again and again. And it has enormous capacity to influence a, a tiny country like the Solomon Islands, as it has done so many other countries. Sri Lanka is another example. So what would it take you for China to be able to move this relationship and agreement that they have with the Solomons into a space where they were able to put a military base there on the Solomon Islands? I mean, obviously, it requires agreement from the Solomon Islands, and they're at the moment saying they've got no interest in that. What, in your view, would have to happen and therefore, I guess, by extension, what could Australia do to ensure it never happens for it to sort of, if you like, get to that point now? Well, I fear the horse has bolted. Um, the amount of economic pressure that China can bring to bear on the Solomon Islands means that the line of least resistance for, for the Solomon Islands government might be to say, oh, look, have, have a, you know, it start off with, say, visiting ships' rights. And then they'll say, oh, well, we bring the ships down, but it's a bit hard to... Um, to service them properly. Maybe we'll just put a wharf in here, but we'll pay for it. Don't worry about that. Oh, well, now that we've got the wharf in there, we should defend it because, you know, who knows what sort of hothead might come along there and try to blow the thing up. So we'll just put some defensive structures around the wharf that we've put in. And by these processes of degree, they can establish a military base. Or alternatively, there becomes some other uh, provocation is perceived somewhere in the area. Oh, we, we must go there to your defence. Mm. And, you know, bear in mind that there were people from the other island off Guadalcanal, the main island of the Solomons, coming from, from Malaita, had come into town. There are long-time tensions between the Malaitans and those on Guadalcanal, and they've gone down there and laid siege to the parliament. So it only requires an event like that for China to come and say, we'll save you. Oh, and by the way, if we're going to save you, we need these other things. So the difficulties are now much more difficult for Australia and the United States and other, other like-minded Pacific nations to stop this happening. You know, and the only thing we can do is to be very, very close to them, to be in there all the time, to bring them, they talk about the Pacific family, to really keep them in the Pacific family and to try to hold China off. But this will be an arm wrestle. And ultimately, the weight now goes more to China's advantage. And once they get a base there, that has changed the strategic nature of our section of the Pacific. And I think it's yeah naive not to think that's going to be the way it'll go. That goes back to Penny's point, doesn't it? Penny Wong making the point that it was you know the greatest strategic blunder, if you like. I guess her point is that by allowing that door to get cracked ever so slightly ajar, those flow-on consequences which you've just described become potentially inevitable, don't they? And in a sense, the way Hugh you just play that out highlights why Penny Wong uh, may well be right to have said what she said. We'll only know, won't we, in the decades to come. 
Yeah, I think in a 20-year view of this, this will be seen as a pivotal moment. You know, so there's that. But uh, other issues, let's bring it closer to home, I guess. Deves, who is the endorsed Liberal candidate for the seat of Warringah, now has no prospect of winning the seat. She's deleted and apologised for transphobic comments that she has made because of the nature of the specific comments, but not her views. You're close to this. What is the net damage to the Liberal Party out of this whole kerfuffle, given that there's an argument that, in fact, her views work for the Liberal vote in some parts of Australia, far from harbourside suburbs? Hmm. Look, I'm not even convinced, to be honest, that her views, and we'll talk about the detail of this in a moment, I'm not actually even convinced that her being allowed to stay as the candidate and the you know proliferation of her views hurts those inner city moderate liberals trying to hold on to their seats against the teal independents because I think there could well be a lot of people who have doubts and concerns and questions they want answered who think it's a reasonable debate to have about whether or not transgender people should be allowed to compete in women's sport or not. And so on that specific issue, I'm not convinced that this necessarily does harm to the Liberals in the inner city seats, but perhaps helps them because it starts a sort of a divisive debate that in the outer metropolitan seats, a lot of people who are more conservative might be in favour of. That's the sort of traditional assumption. I'm not convinced about that necessarily. My issue though, and I don't say any of that as a defence of her being allowed to stay as an endorsed Liberal candidate, this is what really bugs me about this and about the contempt I have for the silence amongst moderate Liberals other than Matt Keane the New South Wales Treasurer who actually has chosen to speak out and boldly declare that she should be disendorsed. The collective failure, uh, morally, as far as I'm concerned, of all of these moderate Liberals who are also potentially under threat in these inner city seats, whether or not the traditional narrative that this hurts them or my view that it may not is the political outcome, they should be speaking out on this because the Prime Minister is trying to turn this into a debate about whether or not people generally are okay or not okay with transgender participation in female sports. That's not what's at issue here. That's a legitimate debate to have. I'm actually yet to be convinced about complete transgender participation in female sport. But the important caveat to me saying that is that I I don't profess to be educated enough to make a learned call on that. I need to learn more and know more to try to ascertain whether there is some inner prejudice that I have that is dictating my concerns that I want answered on that, or whether they are legitimate concerns when it comes to you know what is or isn't fairness in sport. I park that though. My issue with this debate is her rhetoric, her offensive rhetoric. It is not about a pylon against her for her view that a lot of people no doubt share about there being a concern about transgender participation in female sport. It's about the way she expresses it comparisons to the Nazis, the way she claimed and has apologized for, but claimed on multiple occasions that, you know, half of transgender people are sex offenders. Her rhetoric is appalling and her rhetoric alone is reason for her to be disendorsed. And it is reason enough, in my view, for moderate liberals and all liberals, frankly, to speak out and remove her. The prime minister won't do that because she's a captain's pick. He handpicked her to put her in there, so he looks like a goose for having done that, given what has come out about all the things and the way she said the things that she has. 
He looks like a goose. He doesn't want to therefore have mud on his face by backtracking on this one, Hugh. And he's therefore trying to twist this debate in a way where he says he doesn't want to pile on against her over her views. It's not about that. By doing it that way, what he's actually doing is creating a pylon against transgender Australians because he's trying to shift the debate to a black and white one. You either support her views or you don't when it comes to women in sport and transgender participation. That's not the issue. Scott Morrison, in vexatiously saying this is a pylon against her, is deliberately trying to isolate the pylon to transgender Australians because what should be in play here is the realisation that transgender people and this issue are being used by her with her rhetoric and by Scott Morrison trying to get out of jail on his stupid captain's call. They are being, there is an attempt by them to isolate transgender people and really anyone who has been racially vilified, anyone who has been sexually vilified for their gender and anyone who has throughout the debate over LGBTI rights uh, when it came to things like gay marriage, who has felt vilified, has to protect transgender people in this debate against the appalling rhetoric, references and comparisons that this disgraceful candidate has made. And I, I really abhor what has happened here. And the willingness of all of those moderate liberals to stay silent, I think is utterly, utterly shameful. And I even had one, Hugh, if I can just say this, I even had one liberal say to me when we were arguing about this privately, this moderate liberal put to me that the ultimate vindication here will be for this candidate to lose and lose big in the seat of Warringah, and that will send the message. Well, my response to that was actually, firstly, do you even hear yourself? I'm saying that you should support her being disendorsed. You're saying, I don't want to do that, but I hope she loses. I mean, the hypocrisy and the stupidity of that logic is certainly off the charts. But more to the point, people who are staying silent, my view is if you think that she should lose to create some sort of compelling case against her, then you should want her disendorsed as a matter of logic. And my view is that I don't just want her to lose. I feel like they all deserve to lose for their silence about letting her get to the finish line as a Liberal Party candidate. And one last thing on this, Pauline Hanson was removed as the Liberal candidate in the 1996 election. She ended up winning the seat anyway as an independent and off she went. John Howard wouldn't let her stay in the tent for her views. Now, he might have different views on this particular issue now. He's a lot older and he's out of politics. But John Howard contemporaneously was not prepared to tolerate Pauline Hanson within the Liberal Party, whatever people think about how he dealt with her subsequently. Uh, that is, in my view at least, analogous to what Scott Morrison should be doing in this particular instance. But Scott Morrison is proving himself once again to be no John Howard. I should say that John Howard, in disendorsing the fish and chip owner who'd sprung from nowhere in a traditionally safe Labour seat, was never expected to go on and win the bloody thing as an independent and then creating the whole Pauline Hanson phenomenon. I mean, one argument against disendorsing deeds is that, uh, you know, who knows she could get up and win the seat and then you've got this person ramping around Parliament. That is not going to happen in the seat of Warringah. I think we can all agree on that, whether she's a Liberal Party member or whether she's there as a disendorsed Liberal Party candidate standing as an independent. I suspect that uh, if John Howard could look backwards and say, um, maybe I'd made a different decision if I could by that have prevented the rise of Pauline Hanson, 
wound up being more of a difficulty for the coalition than it was for the Labour Party over the years. Maybe you take a different view. Yeah, but my my, I don't, I, my view on that is that there, there are rights and wrongs and turning a blind eye to what she said and letting her carry on as the Liberal candidate is something that just has to be dealt with the same way I think it does here with the Warringah candidate. And if you're like gaming out what might happen however many moves further down the line as a way to sort of justify doing the wrong thing in the here and now, I don't think is is best practice. And I think that is actually what Scott Morrison is doing with her. Uh, and it's not what John Howard did with Pauline Hanson. If he might do something differently, Hugh, in hindsight, with how much of a pain in the backside Pauline Hanson became for him, that would disappoint me because then it would sort of, if you like, turn John Howard into an equivalent of what I think Scott Morrison is at the moment. All right, well, we'll see if she goes all the way to the line, uh, this Warringah candidate. Um, it is dispiriting to hear some of the language that people, people out there saying, you know, the, the implication being that people are transitioning from one gender to another for no purpose other than so that they can succeed in sport when they otherwise wouldn't succeed in sport is so absurd and insulting that it, uh, it really does start to chart new lows. Mm, that's exactly right. I mean... It is such a big thing for somebody to be prepared to embrace what and who they are and be prepared to transition. The idea that you would do it to win a medal on a podium is profoundly offensive. And we can have a debate, and we should have a debate, about transgender participation and where the lines are and aren't in sport. But we have to have it in a civil way without the bile. And whether the bile is that by her or some of the other ridiculous references and comparisons that she's made. That is what she should be held accountable for and disendorsed for. It is not about the debate itself. And I think transgender people are prepared to have the debate. They just don't want to have it with that kind of crap getting thrown at them when they're already going through important life decisions and dealing with other prejudices that they have to face anyway. And that's the problem here. Indeed. PVO, we're out of time. Good luck on the trail. I thought you were in Canberra and Factor in Brisbane. Next time, who knows where you'll be, but uh, we'll try and find you and have another chat before too long. Chat then, Hugh. Good to chat as always. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.